Hello there, and welcome to episode 21 of The Game Pit. We know we've been away for a little while, but we're back now with a Vault episode. I'm Sean, and here's Ronan. Hey there, yeah. Um, it's been a while. I, we mentioned a couple of times maybe, but we both work shifts in the railway industry, and sometimes the stars don't align, the Doom track gets a bit low, and we just cannot marry up our schedules and get anything recorded. So... We're hoping to pop out a couple of episodes more quickly than usual to try and make up for the gap we've had. But this episode is going to be one of our The Vault episodes. We've had a couple of them already. It's where Sean and I both nominate two games. Out of those four games we've nominated, we're going to have a discussion, we're going to work it down, and we're going to put one of them forward to enter the Game Pit Vault to join Dominion and Tigris and Euphrates as the best games out there that you can possibly play what we're going to do is we are going to talk about our two games each then the other person is going to play devil's advocate this means that even if they like the game they're still going to throw some negatives at the person who chooses the game then at the end of the episode we're going to just have a general discussion about the merits the pros and cons of each of the games and then eventually narrow it down to two and then one and that one will go into the vault ronan what are your two selections this week? My two selections are Seven Wonders and Power Grid. Sean, what two games are you going to be put forward? Well, it's uh, the Battle of the Big Daddy, so I'm putting forward Small World and Carcassonne. You can catch all our episodes along with other written audio and video game goodness at 2d6.org. We are members of the Dice Tower Network. Go to dicetowernetwork.com for Tons and tons of gaming, podcasting content from all around the world. So, the first game in contention is Small World, released in 2009 by Days of Wonder. It's designed by Philip Kiartz, and Philippe has done Evo, Olympos, and Twin Timbots. It plays a 2 to 5, but there's just been an actual 6 player board release, so it's probably 2 to 6 now, and with a time frame of about an hour and a half. So, what is it? It's a fantasy area control game where players take control of a varied race and power combinations to capture as much of the map as possible. Just a little bit of additional info, Small World is actually a re-implementation of the 1999 game Vinci, also designed by Kiarts, and he has given it a bit of a fantasy-themed overhaul with Small World. So how do you play it? You're going to start off with a map for the right number of players that must be chosen as there are two double-sided game boards, obviously one for two, three, four, and five players. There are 15 race tiles and 20 power tiles in the game. And these are drawn randomly together until five combinations are on display. And these are the available choices for the players. So there may be races like elves, giants, trolls and wizards. And they could be teamed up with special powers like seafaring, wealthy, commando and berserk. So that the players will have the race power and the special power available to use, stroke, benefit from. For example... Commando Giants will give the person with that combination the Giant bonus, which is that they can conquer mountain regions more easily, and the Commando bonus will allow them to conquer all regions more easily. That would be a really nice combo to get hold of. On the first turn, 
players must select one of the race power combos with the number one slot being free and the others costing money depending on the position. The player will take the combined number of troop tokens for that race displayed on the race and power tile. Then the player will deploy their race tokens by starting on a border region of the map and follow these rules. The general rule of thumb is that you must place two tokens and then one more for each number of tokens already on the region space. For example, in a mountain region there will be a mountain token and there may be another player race token so then it would take up to four tokens to conquer that region. On their last conquest attempt, players who don't have enough tokens to take a region may roll a dice and that will give results from zero to three. They can add the result as if it were additional tokens to conquer that region. If they fail to get enough tokens, they, the ones they already have are deployed in an already conquered region. Then the player may redeploy the troop tokens to fortify areas where they are threatened by other players, as long as they leave one token in each area. And lastly, they will collect one coin per region they control, including in decline races, but we'll cover that later. Also, some race or bonus powers influence the scoring of coins. The difference with subsequent turns is that initially players will choose to either expand their active race or put the race into decline. This means that they basically flip the race tile and the race tokens over and lose the bonuses for them, and they're specifically told to ignore this. And they can score that race as normal, ignoring any scoring bonus. This is what they do on their turn. On the next turn, they will select a new race and deploy that race. The scoring will be for both the active and in-decline race tokens on the board. Players are only allowed one in-decline race. One more thing to note is that when a player loses a region to another player, they will normally lose one active race token. Any others will be held for their next deploy phase. Once the turn marker reaches the final turn of the game, it finishes with the players with the most coins, the winner. So why do I like Small World? Firstly, it's a game that makes me want to talk about it long after it ends. It's whether it be a wild race power combination or an inventive strategy employed. There's always a bit of chat afterwards. Oh, you did this. Oh, you talked that person into that. Oh, what was that combination you got? There's hardly any downtime in this either. Turns are quick and the players are forced by the mechanics to interact. What other players are doing is of the utmost interest to you because you're always interacting with each other. There is some replayability to this game because the random race and power combinations and how players have to adapt to these races ensure that the game stays fresh. The presentation is amazing. The artwork is superb and it's just all very well presented. This is a game with hidden depth. On the face of it, it looks like a very simple place your tokens, take your area game. When you factor in decisions like where to expand, what to defend, when to decline, what combo to choose, how best to use that combo, it just deepens and deepens. This game doesn't take itself seriously, and it's well-timed to never outstay its welcome. It's easy to learn, it's a game for all ages, and I just think it's one of the most fun games around. Okay, so now that Sean has explained a quick overview of Small World and briefly why he enjoys it, I'm going to take a devil's advocate role and I'm going to throw up some commonly held negative views on Small World. During this section for the four games, these are not our personal views, we'll discuss those a bit later. Just a chance to throw the other side of the story across to the person who's advocating each game. So Sean, 
In Small World, there is zero strategy to the game. Everything's tactical because everything's changing so much, which means you cannot plan your turn when it's other people's turns, which creates a lot of downtime because every time you go to take a turn, you have to reassess everything that's on the board. The reason that's wrong is because the rules are so simple that it doesn't add any downtime into the game at all. It is a very reactive game. You do have to react to what people are doing, but there's not so much that you can do there's there's certain strategies that you can employ but they're very very minor strategies where to go what combination of powers to use that's not, not what the game's about it's not a deep strategy game it's a reactive game it's a slap your opponent in the face game and it's a lot of fun for that you say that it's a simple set of rules and therefore it's easy to teach and good for simple gamers but the fact is, there is an exception or eight to almost every rule in the game with all the combinations of races and powers, which actually makes it a real pain to teach. And you're constantly having to remind people of what the rules are for each race. Well, the game actually comes with a handy little breakdown of what all the combinations do. So you've got one side that will tell you what all the races do and one side that will tell you what all the powers do. There's so many combinations here. You're never going to memorize all of them and you're going to have to look up each one as it comes out a good way of doing this is tell everyone the first five what they do so they can make a decision and as they come out the person drawing that tile then announces what this is this tile and this is this and this is what this combination can do and then everyone can make their decision on what to take you don't have to know what everyone's tiles do only the people around you and more specifically your own so i don't think it does take and i do actually think it adds to it because you get that moment of tension well what's going to come out next oh he's got first go at it so if it's really good he's going to go for it so i think it actually adds to the game those combinations which add variety to the game, some of them are just plain better than others and can in fact be broken. Yeah, there are really powerful combinations, definitely. As I said in my explanation, Commando Giants, they both geared towards making it much easier to take the land around you, which and that's the basics of the game. But I think there's so many and so much choice that you negate this because out of a choice of five race power combinations, you're going to get a good one for yourself. You're not going to sit and take the first one in the list because it's only going to cost you a coin and you start with enough coins anyway to go up to the furthest one away from you. So I think anyone that says that people will get a better race then no they don't because you've always got the chance of putting your race in decline and getting a better one for yourself anyway there are a few race power combinations that make that player really difficult to take out but it all swings in roundabouts and your next one is probably not going to be near as powerful as that if you're lucky enough to get one of the super powered combinations so i don't see the problem in it you're talking about roundabouts. Well, this whole game is one big roundabout because all it is is everyone bashing the perceived leader. The scoring might be hidden, but you have to declare what you're scoring, which means people will decide who's the leader at the time and then everyone's just going to take turns hitting them until they perceive someone else has become the leader. That's all it's about. You want to win this game, just appear to be losing. Yeah, to a degree. I think Vinci, which is the first implementation of this game, your points were actually on display and it was a real problem. So that's why Philippe Kiartz actually in this game decided to hide the scoring. People do take notice of what you get. And if you get a couple of big scores like a 14 or a 15, 
15 and a couple of them on the bounce, people are going to automatically think that person's leading. And that's where the game chat comes in. People try and divert people. And I like that. I love a bit of game chat. One of my favorite games of this ever was when I managed to convince Ronan's daughter to attack him because he was obviously about to attack her. It was awesome. And that's a part of this game. Definitely the table chat. Again, your table chat comment leads straight into my next point. All the table chat is adversarial and it's all subjective. Everyone has their own point of view and they're going to say attack him or attack her or do this because it's best from their point of view. But everyone's got their own point of view, which leads to arguments. It's difficult for people to really table chat honestly because it can be very abrasive and it just creates a bit of tension. The whole undertone of this game is fun. It sets itself up as just nothing but fun. Again, I'm going to go back to Vinci when it was about real sort of life armies and real life nations attacking each other. This isn't it. It's a fantasy theme thing. It's very comical what they do. And the undertone is definitely all about fun. There is the table chat when everyone's trying to convince everyone to attack other people. But I don't ever think it gets adversarial to the point where people are abusive and I think it's a lot of fun for that element the ratio of decisions to make to game length is absolutely crazy you are making so many tiny tiny decisions all the time just working out tiny little math problems is it worth spending two counters to score a point here or one counter to score a point there that's all you're doing, just working out tiny little problems and you're waiting there for two and a half hours just to make these tiny decisions. I'm not sure I've ever been in a two and a half hour game of this. I don't think I've even been in a two hour game of this. So on that one, I will object to. But the tiny little math problems I really enjoy about it. It's not too deep. They're only tiny little decisions. They, they're nothing that's going to tax you too much. You might have a bit of a quandary and an agonizing decision to make on your last turn, maybe, or something. But in the middle of the game, you're not really worried about it. You're just eking out what you can, moving on and seeing what everyone else is doing. Okay, I'm going to move away from gameplay for my last couple of points here to you, Sean. That graphic design. Some of the counters are very similar colors. A lot of the artwork is very small. The board artwork is garish. Sometimes it's really difficult to see what's happening on the board, to tell who's who, especially with lots of races in decline when they're all just black and white counters. It's a real muddle to the eye. It's difficult to tell quickly what's happening. On this point, I will agree slightly. I think in decline races can be difficult to tell sometimes. But I would say the artwork on the tiles, the actual counters for the races is quite garish and that's intentional but i actually really like the board i think the board is really vivid and beautiful and i think each region stands out well from the others and stands out well from the tiles as i come back to my point about the actual tiles being garish i think when they've turned face up then they do stand out from each other i think there may be one or two races that are a little bit similar but you'd be very unlucky to get them smack bang on top of each other and if you did they are different enough for you to tell you just have to pay a little bit more attention as i said when you do flip it over it's a kind of like a beige representation of the tiles and it can get a little bit difficult to see them but people's in decline tiles get eaten up so quickly it's very rarely a problem and my last point and certainly the most serious of all the points i've made talk to me about that counter box and exactly how awful it is and how difficult it is to get to the counters. 
<laughs> we can't really judge on this, given that our fingers are incredibly fat. We can't get muscular. our fingers in there. Muscular, sorry, sorry, muscular. We can't get our muscular fingers into the box. I don't know if that everyone's going to have the same problems as we do, Ronan. So... I think it's a very, very good way of dividing the counters and setting things up so that it doesn't get too muddled. You don't have these piles, like with Arkham Horror, you have these piles of counters all over the place. They get muddled up. Someone jogs the table, they're all over the place. I think it's a very good idea and a very good way of separating the counters. Okay, Sean. So that's the end of uh, my devil's advocate bit for Small World. Do you want to give us your final thoughts before we move on to the next game? Okay, so that's my first choice. I think it's a worthy choice for consideration. I think it's a wonderful game. It's a fun game. It's a family game that people of all ages can enjoy and I've seen enjoy. As I said before, convincing Ronan's daughter to attack him was just a great moment in gaming. He's stunned disbelief as she absolutely wiped out his troops. Fantastic. Wonderful, beautiful, fun game. first game I'm going to nominate to go into the vault this time around is Seven Wonders. It's a 2010 release for two to seven players and the time they say it takes is around half an hour, which maybe it goes a tad longer than that. The designer is Antoine Bowser, who is really making a splash. We've certainly talked about him before. He's designed games such as Hanabi, Ghost Stories, Takanako, Rampage, and more. It was originally published by Repos Productions, who are strongly linked to Antoine Bowser, and games they've had recently, the likes of Concept, Cash and Guns, Masquerade, City of Horror. So this is a card-drafting, tableau-building, civilization game. Each player plays the role of one ancient civilization, and they start with a small board which represents a wonder which they and only they are going to be able to build. It also provides them with one starting resource. On the bottom of the wonder that they've chosen, there are going to be three or four levels available to build, which will give them various bonuses throughout the game. Now, the whole game is driven by cards and also on these player boards, and they all share an iconography, an iconography which shows arrows to dictate what affects what where, um, gold to tell you if you're going to make any money, a symbol for points if you're going to make points, or resources if something provides you with resources. So on the board, it shows you what you start with and what you can possibly gain from building levels of the wonder as the game goes on. The way you continue after everyone's got a wonder is you build the decks for the game. There are going to be three eras and you're going to create enough cards in each of those three eras that every player is going to get dealt out seven random cards. Now, the set of cards you get for each era is going to be the same every time you play with the same number of players. So every time you have a three-player game, you'll have the same cards in the first and second eras, and mostly in the third era with a slight difference, which I'll talk about later. And again, with a five-player game, there's a set cards are going to be in the deck but you will be dealt a random hand of seven out of that particular set each player then simultaneously drafts one card from the seven cards they've been given and puts it face down in front of them and then passes the other cards remaining either clockwise or anti-clockwise depending upon the era 
then everyone reveals that card, says what they're going to do with it, and then takes the cards that have been passed, drafts one of those cards face down and passes the hand on around again. And you're going to do that six times during the course of each era. So 18 times over the course of the game in order to build up a tableau of cards. And all the time they're going to be giving you effects. There's three different things you can do with your cards when you place them. If you have the resources required to build that particular card, you're going to be able to put it into play. And I'll talk about that in a sec. Every card can be handed in for money. Or you can place it face down, it doesn't matter what the card is then, as a level of your wonder, if you can afford to pay for the wonder. So, how can you pay for these cards? Well, some cards are free, and that's generally the more basic and easier ones. But most cards have got a cost in the top right-hand corner. And that cost tells you what you have to pay in order to build it. And it's going to be a combination of resources, or money, or possibly a previous card you've built. So some cards will allow you to upgrade, if you like, and build other cards as well as. So you can create little chains there. What type of cards are they, and what are these resources I'm talking about? Well, there are seven types of cards, and we'll start with the two basic ones, the resources. They come in grey or brown, and they are either basic resources in brown, which are brick, ore, wood, stone, etc., or there are three kind of commodity resources, and that's the likes of glass and cloth and papyrus. So if you're building one of those brown or grey cards, usually they're going to be free or not cost you very much. And that's kind of the basis of your civilization. That's the basic resources you have. And then the other more complicated cards will have a cost in those basic resources which you're going to be able to play. The good news is you don't have to have those basic resources yourself. Because the first bit of interaction we're going to talk about is if your neighbour to your left or your right has those resources you need, you can pay them money, give them two gold in order to use their resource. You don't take it from them, it doesn't affect the rest of the game. Just having that resource or you having the resource in front of you means you can use it each turn. So if I have two brick, I can spend two brick every turn, every time I want to build something. The other five types of cards are, well, there's blue cards, and those are basically just improvements you're building in your civilization, and all they're going to do is give you points, although some of them do upgrade to other better cards. Not that you replace the card by upgrading, it just means you can build the better card. There's also yellow cards, which are commerce cards. Now, commerce cards are going to provide you with money, which it does score points at the end, but possibly more likely you're going to use to build cards with or to buy resources from your neighbours. They can also sometimes give you points at the end of the game if you meet certain conditions, or they might give you a discount on those transactions you're going to make with your neighbours left and right. The next type of card are the military red cards. These are going to provide you with one, two, or three swords or military power, depending upon the era you're in. So era one cards give you one sword, 2-2 two, two, and 3-3. Three, three. At the end of each era, yourself and your neighbours to your left and right are going to have a little war. To have that war, you kind of, as if the space between you was under contest, you add up who has the most swords or military power available in the tableau that they've built, and whoever has the most is going to score points. It's going to be 1, 3 or 5, depending upon the era respectively, and whoever has the least is going to lose one point at the end of the game. And We'll come back to that again when we uh, discuss points, but that's what military does. It is another way of interacting between neighbours, but this time in a slightly less friendly way. The sixth type of card are the green science cards. Now, these are probably the most complicated cards for scoring, but they can be very powerful. There are three different types of science cards, and they score in two different ways. So, you score for sets of having one of each of the three different types. 
However, not only is having a variety good, but if you get a monopoly on one type of card, you're going to score the square of that type. So, for example, if I had four of the tablet science cards, I would score the square of four, which is 16 points just for those. And then if they're parts of sets, they also score as well. So maybe if I had two of each of the other two types, I'd score seven points for each of those types, and suddenly I'm scoring 30 points for science. It'd be quite powerful. That probably doesn't make too much sense, but just be aware that you collect sets of those green science cards, and they score you points. And the last type of cards are the guilds. They're purple. Now, they only come out in Era 3. They're going to give you points for something. It may be points for all the defeated military around you. It may be points for every green card around you. It may be points for every basic resource card that people have or the level of wonders that's been built. All different things that can be done during the game, these guild cards will give you bonus cards for. They're only available in the third era and they're the only variety in the decks from game to game because there's more of them than you need for each game and you put a certain amount in per game you play and they're the only cards you don't know which ones are around. Those are the seven different types of cards you're going to be building. You're going to build 18 of them over the course of the game as a maximum, give or take one or two, depending on different powers of things in the game. Like I say, you can use those cards instead of for levels of wonders. Now, levels of wonders, when you build them, they've got their own cost in the bottom of your board. It doesn't matter what card you put underneath there. And actually, it can be quite a valid tactic in the game to just bury cards that the next person around needs. You don't need or you can't build, but you can build them as your level of wonder. And they're going to give you stuff like possibly money, probably points at the end of the game. They might give you sort of a wild joker science um, symbol to add into your science collection, or they might give you military strength. Different wonders give you different things and can give you a slight guide in what direction you might want to go to while you play the game. At the end of the game, when everyone's done 18 drafts, you're then going to add up all your points and the player with the most points is going to win. You're going to get points for how well you've done in your military battles. So if you win them, there's a possibility of scoring a maximum of 18 points there. If you lose them all, possibility of scoring minus six points. You're going to get points for your money. Each three money you have is worth one point at the end of the game. You're going to have points for having built your wonder. Now, most wonders, I think, will give you 10 points at the end of the game if you've built them all. The old one or two might give you 15 or possibly less, but a different bonus. So your wonders will give you points. All those blue cards, basically, they're just there in order to provide you with points. You're going to get any points that your yellow cards might give you because they give you money when you play them, but points when you score them at the end of the game. There's also those guild cards we mentioned that are bonus scores and those green science cards that score in the sets. That's it. That's how you play Seven Wonders. It has been expanded by two so far for proposed seven expansions for this, which will make it huge if they do happen. Two expansions very quickly are Leaders and Cities. Leaders brings in a pre-game draft where everyone starts with a hand of four leaders, takes one, passes them on to you, all have four. You get a little bit more money because those leaders cost money and you can bring one into play at the beginning of each era if you choose to. It can give you a little bit more planning or strategy towards what you want to do and the latest one is called cities that brings an eighth type of card into the game black cards which are city cards it adds a bit more interaction between the different civilizations and also adds the possibility of playing a team game where you can play eight players four teams of two and the interaction doesn't happen between those two but between the teams which sounds like it can be interesting i haven't tried it i'm really hoping to try it why have i nominated seven wonders to be the best of the best and go into the vault well, this seems to be a very simple game and often gets called a beginner's game. 
I think because you're only playing 18 cards, so it seems like you're not doing much. The graphic design is fantastic. It's very clear. Once you get your head around it, you know exactly what every card does. It's not a lot of referring to the rule book as to what each card does. But I don't believe it is just the beginner game. It's possible to play it on a very superficial level. And like some other games, you, you'll do fine. You're always going to score some points for some things you've done. And you might think, oh, okay. But maybe you'll wonder, why am I always losing? Well, there's more to it. It seems like there's only interaction in the game between you and your left and right neighbours, but that's not true. You're interacting with every player around the table because there is only a finite amount of cards. There's a set amount of each resource in the game. And if someone's taking it all on the other side of the table, well, then you're not going to be seeing it. And you need to be aware of that. If they're drafting all the stone producing resources on the far side, you need to react to that and do something if you're going to need stone later on in the game, just for example. You must be aware of other people's plans. It opens up some real kind of gaming meat within a friendly shell of, well, it all seems very simple, but we have to be aware of what each other's doing or we're just going to let people walk away with the game. And finally, and possibly most importantly, and why certainly I've played it so many times, is that there really is no better option for a larger group of players who want to play something with some strategy and tactics, not just a party game, but they haven't got a long time to do it in. So that's my nomination, Seven Wonders. So, as Ronan did with Small World, I am now going to play Devil's Advocate and pose some questions to him. Ronan, one of the big selling points of this game is interaction, but are you not just interacting with the people sitting next to you and ignoring everybody else? I think some people are doing that when they play the game, because it's so obvious a lot of the cards have arrows that show yourself and the players either side of you a lot of the cards give you just interaction the military obviously is all geared to just interacting between the two of you but as i think i touched on in my summary there there's only a certain amount of everything in the game if there's a huge amount of science drafting going on the other side of the table it doesn't pay for you to start then drafting science because not so many cards are going to come around to you if someone has taken certain let's say blue buildings which you know upgrade to other blue buildings which can score points in, in combinations but they're both gone then stop worrying about that you need to adjust what you're doing it's not hugely massively strategic you're not going to be making treaties with people across the table or anything like that because it is a quick game but if you're ignoring those beyond your immediate vicinity you're not really playing the game maximally the iconography is too varied and can become confusing, leading to lots of questions during the card drafting. I think that there is a variety in iconography, and that is the only stumbling block. But once it clicks, it really does click. And once you realise what everything means, it might take usually just one play really but possibly one or two plays but it's one or two plays of a 30 to 40 minute game not one or two plays of a three hour game once you've done that and you realize oh that always means that i always get gold if gold's on a card immediately i always score points if points are on the card at the end of the game arrows pointing in either direction mean exactly that that person on the left that person right if it's pointed downwards it means me Although there's a fair few numbers of symbols, they're all standardized. Wherever they appear, they mean exactly the same thing. Soon enough, you realize, okay, that's what it means, that's what it means, that's what it means. So questions early, but not so difficult to get your head around. The one bit of it I will say that there is perhaps questions about the iconography is in leaders. 
I still find that confusing. I still need to grab the rule book and say, what does that one do? What does that one do? Because they're a little bit more complicated. But you're not going to play with leaders for your first game, I hope. I hope no one's silly enough to do that to you. Brendan, you mentioned in your description of the game that the scoring was a little bit complicated and people might not understand your description of it. Is it overly complicated, especially as the game is supposed to be a light game? I don't think it's overly complicated at all because you're not doing anything complicated to score those points. It's not like I have to do a chain of six different actions in order to score some points at the end of it, which is what you're going to get in a lot more games recently. It's very simple actions, which may score a slightly complicated way at the end. And in all honesty, the only real confusion is over science. And if you're confused about it, ignore it. You're not going to be able to score points in well, no, you are going to be able to score points in every area in the game, but it's not the best way to play. You're best off attempting to maximise in one or two different areas. If you can't get your head around science, don't worry about science. Ignore it for that first game. Once you see someone score it once, it should click. The game makes you directly play with those next to you. So you are relying on resources and them not to stitch you up. The players across the table from you could do equally as well as you or slightly less but if they don't get stitched up by the players next to them they can win the game without you being able to influence that at all i think that's just an issue in any game with increased player number which has any level of interaction whatsoever if you want to play completely solitaire and just win by playing the most efficiently that's a different type of game in a game that has any interaction if people around you playing a certain way it can affect the way you play and part of the reaction to that is part of the unpredictability of any game and why highly interactive games are much more real playable than low interaction games it, as a general there's always going to be exceptions to that so that's kind of like saying well it's the variable of human beings if you don't like it play against AIs all the time and maybe it'll be a bit more predictable sure maybe the guy across from me is going to have two players either side of them and those players are going to play directly into their hands. But I just have to do the best of what I get handed. You know, I might get different cards in the initial setup, which, which don't go with what I want to do in the long term. You just have to react to it. In a 30, 40 minute game, can you really be that bothered if someone edges you out just because of something someone else did around the table? Play well, get close to winning and see where it goes from there. It's not perfect. There is a little bit of luck in it. There is some interaction. There you go. It's just that game. Meaningful decisions are in short supply in this game. When you receive cards, it's obvious which ones you should take and which ones you should deny your fellow players. Well, if there was only one card each time which is obvious to take, then maybe, but that very rarely happens unless you're coming down to the end of a draft. The meaningful decisions, a lot of them, are very early. People seem to think those early drafts aren't that important. You're just going to get some stuff and other people will get some stuff. And it's later on that you're scoring the points. But the foundations you lay for scoring those points later are early on. What you take, what everyone around you is taking, and make sure you're not denied access to things you're going to need later. If you need glass later on for some of your wonder, you need a way of getting glass. Be that through trading, by putting a yellow card out that provides you one luxury resource every turn, whatever it might be. If you need it, get hold of it. Decisions are tough early, and that's where that scramble for resources should be. And then you build on those foundations. You go from there. 
people seem to treat the, the resource cards almost as throwaways. They don't score you direct points, therefore don't worry about them. If you want a good strategy, you need to maximize efficiently what resources you have, look at what your neighbors have, and then go from there. There are hard decisions all the way throughout the game. It's very rare that I'll be in an era three draft, and this will down to the last hand, and not have two or three good options to go for, having to look around at what everyone else has done, see what resources they've got available, see if I'm passing on something they can or cannot build to play next to me and the one after that. The game has no tension and very little excitement. All it is is picking cards and doing what you can with those cards. The tension and excitement in it is from yourself reacting to a constantly changing situation. The boards of players around you Every time they draft and reveal a card, they reveal a new information, which you have to look at and take in and work out, how does that impact on me? Then every time you get handed a hand of cards, you haven't seen this exact hand of cards before. And you have to look at them, assess them, assess what's gone on, assess what's been drafted already, and then make that decision. It's a constant, dynamic, decision-making process. And either you find that interesting or you don't. Seven Wonders is as much of a game as you're going to fit into in this time frame. Genuine decisions, genuine light strategy, great, dynamic, flexible decision-making required, and it's a ton of fun as well as looking good. It is the ultimate in super filler games, and it deserves a place in the vault. So my second and final submission for entry to the vault is Carcassonne, released in 2000, published by a whole slew of game companies from Rio Grande to Z-Man Games, Hobby World, Lotsepolit.fi, Hansim Glock, and so on. It's designed by Klaus Jürgen Reed, and he also did The Downfall of Pompeii, Dragon Riders, Mesopotamia, and Rapa Nui. It plays two to five players in approximately 45 minutes. And for those few people who don't know, Carcassonne is a tile-laying game with a bit of area control, area influence, and a little hint of root building in there. Just a little guide to how big this game has got. There is now 30-plus large, small, and mini expansions available for this game. So how do you play Carcassonne? Each player is going to begin with eight meeples in the colour of their choice, with one of them going on the score track. And a starting tile is placed in the centre of the table. All the other tiles are now placed face down in stacks within easy reach of all the players. During their turn, the players will work through the following steps. First step, they must draw and place a tile. The tile must be placed adjacent to another tile or tiles, but fields, cities, and roads on the place tile must connect to the field, cities, and road of the adjacent tiles. For example, a field edge on a tile you place can't block a road or an unfinished city. If for some reason a person can't fit the drawn tile anywhere on the table, a new one is drawn. Then you may deploy a meeple on the tile you've just placed. Your meeple followers can represent a knight, a thief, a farmer, or a monk. And they are placed as follows. Knights are deployed into city spaces. Thieves are deployed onto roads. Farmers are placed in fields. And finally, monks are placed in cloisters, the standalone buildings that you can draw. These followers 
are how you score in the game, and they work in different ways, more of which to follow. If any of the in-game scoring conditions are met, then the score is totaled and attributed to the relevant player or players. In-game scoring is as follows. Once a road has been completed by being blocked at both ends by a city, cloister or crossing, a player with a thief on the road will earn a point for each segment of that road. If more than one player has thieves on the road, then the points go to the person with the majority of thieves, otherwise each player gets the full point value. The meeple is then placed back in the relevant player's active pool. When a city is finished off and is surrounded by walls, a player with a knight inside will earn two points per segment plus a further two points for any tiles with the pennant printed on them. The exception to this is a two-tile city will only score two points and one point per pennant. Again, if more than one player has a knight inside, the majority wins or both get full value. The meeple again is placed back in the relevant player's active pool. And cloisters is the other way of scoring in-game. These are finished for scoring purposes when they are totally surrounded by nine tiles, scoring the owner of the single monk meeple nine points. The only area not scored during the game is field stroke farms, and they will be done at the end of the game. So, end of game. The game ends at the end of the turn where the last tile is placed. End of game scoring goes like so. Incomplete roads score one point per segment. Incomplete cities scored at half the game value. Again, i.e. one point per segment and one point per pennant. And incomplete cloisters are scored at one point per surrounding tiles. Finally, the farms are scored. Players with the farmers in the field will score four points for each completed city the farm reaches without being blocked off. The size of the farm and of the city does not matter. As with the road and city scoring, the player with the majority of the farmers in the field farm will score the points and any tie will see all players with equal most farmers score the full points value. Then the player with the most points on the tracker is victorious. So that's a simple overview. And that's one of the things that I really love about this game is it's a simple game, but has hidden depth. I think the simplicity means that the old analysis paralysis that we keep banging on about is kept to a minimum in this, as there is not that much to decide per turn, but it still manages to contain real decisions. The tile lane themselves actually manages to be quite exciting. I find a lot of tile lane games to be quite boring and mundane, but with the random draw and having to immediately work out the optimum place to put it, I think it adds that tension and that excitement. Setup time is absolutely no hassle. Just fire it on the table and go, pretty much. Because it's so well known, and it's nearly 15 years old now, it's easy to forget how well made and striking it actually is. The tiles are solid and they really look good. And when you have that land in front of you, it always looks really awesome at the end of the game. Replayability in this game is absolutely huge. The map always turns out differently and that's before you even add on the expansions so there's always more things to discover there's always different ways to play although there are no specific player interaction mechanics in this game everyone is always watching what the other person draws and places because it affects them players are encouraged in the game rules to actually advise on the best placement of each tile so there is plenty of game chat going on i think the thing that sums this game up for me really is that it's easy to learn but difficult to master and i know it's the old chestnut but it does ring true for carcassonne 
The game can be played by any ages without much bother at all because they had layers, just like an onion. And against seasoned Carcassonne players, they will take you to a whole new level in this. That's why it is both an excellent gateway game and an excellent game for experienced gamers. I spoke briefly about how any ages can play. I think children can get so much out of this game. You can learn and develop skills like decision-making, negotiation, communication, planning, foresight, as well as observation and skills. Just a few numbers for this. There are 54,890 owned, and that's just the people who've declared it on Board Game Geek. And it's still on nearly 3,000 people's wish list. What a great game for just about £20. So, as always, Ronan is going to throw a few questions my way. Sean, this game is entirely luck-driven. Whoever gets the best tile draw wins. If I get more cloisters, I've won. That's all there is to it. Might as well just roll the dice. It's much more than just about the tile draw. It's how you use those tiles. You made the point about the cloisters. There's ways to stop people finishing their cloisters. There's ways to stop people finishing their castles. There's ways to get in on people's farms and fields. There's ways to stop people's roads. But it's the clever use of the tiles that you get. You've just got to make the best of what you're given. And there's always, always a way to stop people and earn yourself points. It's a really, really clever game in that way. Well, let's take you on from your own point there then. You say there's always ways to prevent people from doing things in the game. So I'm going to put it to you. It's far too easy to play negatively. You can just keep on adding bits onto cities to make them impossible to finish. You can just screw up people's closest so they never finish them. And the game can just become frustrating because it's too easy to mess everyone else up. You say frustrating, I say tactical. I think when you do get to the real clever seasoned Carcassonne players and that's going to happen but that's what you build up to as I said it's got layers the people who start playing this game aren't going to necessarily see all these blocking techniques and frustrating techniques they're going to just play it for the fun of playing and the people who can't continue playing and get to that level obviously love the game and love the way that they still have fun and still a mind bender for them so we're talking about tactics there and improving your tactics, but that's another problem with it. There's zero strategy. There's no long-term development. There's no long-term planning. There's no real thought to it. It's just draw that tile and do what you can with that tile at that time. Oh, no, of course there's planning and there's planning ahead, definitely. If somebody's got a monopoly on a field, you want to get into that field. If someone's got a really nice little road building, you're going to want to get into it. And you're not necessarily going to get the tile that's going to get you that immediately. You've got to think ahead and think, how am I going to infiltrate on that road? How am I going to infiltrate on that tile? That person's got a nine-piece castle building. How am I going to get into that castle? What's the best thing I can do to get in there? What's the best chance I can give myself? Also, what, what can I build? What am I going to build? And how do I stop other people getting in? and infiltrating my stuff there's always things to think ahead in this farmers are crucial for making the game worth playing because they give you some decisions to make but they ruin it as a casual game because they're so difficult to explain to non-gamers or just casual gamers i think for a very 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 simple game this is the one sort of maybe barrier where people won't understand until the end of the game necessarily some people will some people won't and yeah, it might take you a game to understand farmers, but once you understand it, you're like, 
it's a eureka moment. That light bulb does ping above your head and you go, ah, okay, I see what you did there, right? I'm not going to let you get away with that next time. So there is some truth in that. It's, it's quite difficult to explain the power of the farmers because they do score quite highly. But once that person's got it, it's, it's definitely doesn't need explaining again. If you play as recommended and players draw a tile at the start of their turn, which I think most people ignore that rule anyway and let players draw a tile in advance. But anyway, if you play as recommended especially, the downtime is so frustrating in the game because usually there is one optimal space and once you spot it, you're just dying for the person whose turn it is to spot that space and put the tile down. It's a frustrating game to watch other people playing. Yeah, to a degree. Yeah, but as you said, Ronan, we've already kind of fixed that issue. Yeah, it can be if somebody does get there and it's that optimal place doesn't really leap at them, but we've fixed that issue already. The problem for me has always been when I know exactly where I want to put my tile and it's really going to help me out. And I'm really hoping I've got to get around three, four, five people before my turn and hope that they don't put something there to block me. It's just the tension, but that's a good tension. Okay. The scoreboard is ridiculous. It only goes up to 50 in a game where you're going to score over 100 points pretty much every game. What's going on with that ridiculous scoreboard? Okay, Ronan, you've got me. It's probably the worst thing about the game is the scoreboard. And you know what? I'll take it. What a fantastic game. And yet it's got a terrible scoreboard. Okay, and the last one. I demand an explanation. Firstly, why there's 4,782 expansions for it. And if you want something more specific, please explain the catapult to me. Why? Just why? (laughs) I think the expansions, some are good, some are bad, but I think they all lend something to the game. It's just the the fact that this game is so well-loved and so much played that people just want to add something different into it constantly. And a lot of those expansions really do lend to the gameplay and they just evolve the game. The Catapult, I have no explanation. I know you want an explanation, but I haven't got one for you, Ronan. I'm sorry. I'm just shaking my head at that catapult. Sean, uh, that's the end of my Devil's Advocate bit with regards to Carcassonne. Do you want to just give us a final summary on this game? Yeah, as I said in my spiel after it, I think it's just such a simple game to learn. It has got so much depth to it. You can continue playing this and continue having fun and continue learning new things from it. You're never going to play the same game twice. New player can join a board gaming club and play this game almost straight out of the box and still be playing it 10 years later. That's the beauty of Carcassonne. So the fourth and final game up for submission into the vault in this episode is Power Grid. It's a game for two to six players. It's got a recommended playing time of around two hours. It was first published in 2004, so it's got its 10-year anniversary this year. The designer is Freedom and Freeze. Now, Freedom and Freeze is famous for making lots of games that have Fs in their titles, such as Friday, Factory Manager, Fauna, First Sparks, and just to follow the pattern Copycat which I think might have an F in the title in German. The publisher, well, in English, you're mostly going to get this from Rio Grande Games. Back in these days, 2004, it was mostly a publisher which took Euro games and reprinted them in English. So they've got tons and tons of these classic Euros in their lineup. This 
game is all about building a network on a map. Now, the base game comes with maps of Germany and America, but there are lots of expansions with maps of other regions of the world, but they all do the same thing. You're building a network between cities, which represents a power grid, involves auctions, it involves resource conversion to make money, and is very much an economic game. So how are we going to play Power Grid? Each player starts with 90 money. It's 90 Electro, as it's called in the game. And the board is put onto one of the uh, maps, whichever one you choose. Like I say, the base game, you get a choice of two. The map will show whichever area of the world you're playing in split into regions. And you're going to play in a certain number of regions depending upon player count. On the map, in those regions, there will be cities. And each of those cities will have spaces for three houses. Those cities will also have connections between each other, and on each connection, there's going to be a number in there, which is the connection cost. There is also down the bottom always a resource market. Now, these resources in the game are coal, oil, garbage, and uranium. You're going to be using those as the raw materials to power the networks of cities you are able to build during the game. There is always a set of power plants available with the game. Now, these are laid out in a market where you're going to have eight power plants available. And then you're going to have a deck. These power plants are numbered from 3 up to 50, usually. And you start with numbers 3 to 10 in play at the beginning of the game, which are the most basic power plants in the game. Four of the power plants are laid out in a row, which is called the actual market. And these are power plants which will be available to be purchased, as you'll see in an auction shortly. And the next four are going to be in the future market. So you have some idea of what power plants are going to come up for sale in the future. It's always the three lowest valued power plants which are available in the actual market and the higher valued ones go into the future market. What you're also going to do then is you're going to look at the number of players you're playing with and that's going to dictate how the game is going to develop and how it's going to end because based upon number of players the game ends on the round in which one player is present in a certain number of cities. So for higher player count, it may be something like 14 cities on the board. If one player manages to get a house in each of 14 cities, that makes it the last round. Lower player counts, you're going up 17, 18 different cities. So it balances out a little. To start with, you do a random turn order. Then each player is going to purchase one of these power plants. Now, the way this works is the first player in turn order throughout the game has to decide to go first in the auction phase. Only in the first round it is compulsory that they put a power plant up. And whenever they put a power plant up, the number of the power plant is the minimum bid in money that they must make. Then going clockwise around the table, each player gets a chance to up the bid or to pass. And then when all bar one of the players have passed, the remaining player pays whatever their last bid was into the bank and they take that power plant in front of them. Now during the game, you're only going to be able to have a maximum of three power plants at any time. So in order to become better and better and probably to win the game, you're not just going to purchase three. You're going to purchase more and you're going to be replacing these power plants and hopefully getting better ones and upgrading. So what do these power plants look like? Well, they have on them a certain amount of a resource and then a certain number of cities. So let's look at the basic ones. They might have three coal on the left-hand side and one city on the right-hand side. That means that later on in the turn, when you get to power your cities, you can spend three coal in order to power one city. 
And powering your cities later on is going to give you money. So you see how that works. But that's how the power plants look like. They become more efficient as they get higher up and more expensive. And the way that the draft into the market works, all the higher number of power plants usually are going to be out towards the end of the game. And usually the lower number ones are going to be available for you. So there's a bit of a pacing there as the, you become more efficient and your network builds during the game. And you're going to be making more and more money. Now, it is worth noting that there are a few power plants which don't require any fuel to run. These are the eco plants, and they're usually well sought after because the raw materials that you use to power the plants are always going to cost you money. So if you can get them without having to spend anything on raw materials, sometimes that can help out. Now, after each purchase, the power plant market is going to get restocked, and you draw the top power plant from the deck, and then between that one, and the other four that are in the future market, whichever power plant that's got the lowest value moves down into the actual market and becomes one of the four power plants available to be put up for auction. Now, after this first round in which everyone must purchase a power plant, you then rearrange turn order. And whoever has the highest value power plant is going to go first in turn order down to the lowest value one is going to go last. Now, this is very important because being first in turn order throughout this game is a disadvantage. You have to go first in the auction phase, so the person who's going last might get a chance to buy something at cost price, we'll get to see how the auctions are going, we'll get to see if better power plants come out. Also, you'll see there in the rest of the game, everything becomes more expensive for the first player because turn order actually reverses, and the last player goes first fairly often. The next phase, let's do that right now, that's buying raw materials. The raw materials, the four different types, are available in the market, and starting with the last player, you're able to buy them. Now they're represented by small cubes or little barrels or what have you to show you what they are. The way the market works is there are three spaces usually per value. So let's say for example, coal starts and it costs three per piece of coal. Now there's only three coal available at that price of three. And then once all those are bought, the next one is going to go at four per piece of coal. And then once those three are bought, five per piece of coal, etc., as you can see, being last in turn order and therefore first to purchase is an advantage. The amount of raw materials you can buy depends upon the power plants you have, because you must store these raw materials on your power plants, and each power plant can hold double the amount that it can burn in one phase. So that power plant I mentioned earlier, let's say it takes three coal to fuel one city. Well, I can store a maximum of six coal on that power plant. And that's something you might want to do in order to manipulate the market, because the more you buy and store, the more expensive it makes it for the other players if you think they're going to be out buying raw materials. Once everyone has a chance to buy those raw materials, we'll move on to building. Now, I mentioned there are three spaces in each of the cities for building. But to start with, there's only one space available in each city. Now, those spaces are cost 10, which means only one player can be present in each city. So if you want to build in a city to start with, you choose your first city and you pay 10 and you put one of your little houses on the board. You now have a network which is size 1. To develop from there, you must build from that start. And then you choose another city. As you move along the connection to the city, the cost on each connection you must pay in order to connect to the next city you build in. So, if I'm sitting in a city and there's one neighbouring it and there's a connection cost of six in between, it's going to cost me 16 to build across in there. 10 for the space I'm going into plus six for the connection costs. There's no limit as to how far you can make your connection costs, but you must pay for each connection you link through. So, to jump across cities can make things very expensive. And in a game where you're trying to be economically efficient, that may not be the wisest thing to do. So you decide how many you want to build, it depends how many you can afford and what you think is wise, you pay your costs. This happens again in reverse turn order, so again it's cheaper for the player who's last to build. Some of the things to think about here is that there is blocking in the game. 
start with you can only have one player in each city so therefore if you're able to create a chain across an area where someone is you're going to prevent them or at least make it much more difficult for them to build out of their initial area which can be very effective also depending upon player count there's going to be a certain point when a player reaches a certain number of cities you trigger the second phase of building this means the second space now becomes available in all the cities in the game those second spaces cost 15 to build in for the house the connection costs are still all the same across the map and you can now have two players in each city but one player cannot be present twice in each city the next thing we do then is move into bureaucracy and what happens the firstly is each player earns their money they do that by firing their power plants and then depending upon the number of cities they're able to fuel they get a certain amount of money so let's say I've got that power plant which has three coal to fuel one city and I've built one city I spend my three coal and then there's a chart which you look at to see however many cities you power not how many you have but how many you power and that gives you a certain income and even if you power none you still get a very small income but the more you power the more you get it is however diminishing returns as you get up towards powering more and more city for each extra city you're powering you get slightly less money so it might be an extra 11 for the first couple of cities you build but when you're getting up to your 12 13 city you might be only be getting six extra for example for each one you power the good news is, is like i said those power plants become more efficient from burning three coal for one you can get to a state of maybe burning two coal to power six cities for example now at the end of each round we restock raw materials this is not as boring as it might suggest because it actually affects the game quite a lot Depending upon what phase we are in the game, that's phase one, where just the first areas available in the cities, phase two, when someone's built a certain number of buildings, or phase three, which will start when something happens to the power plants, which I'll talk about in one second. But depending upon what phase we're in, a certain amount of each raw material comes back into the game. So at certain times of the game, perhaps coal might be more prevalent, and then as you move through the phases, perhaps garbage will become more prevalent, and therefore people will be going after garbage power plants, possibly. Also, you can only restock resources with what's available. So if people have been hoarding those resources in order to drive the prices up, it can actually affect the scarcity, which, again, will drive prices up. It's a perfectly valid tactic. Now, from the future market, you take the highest number power plant and you place it underneath the plant stack, and it becomes the bottom card. The original bottom card of that deck is the third phase card. And as you work your way through the deck, each round put in one high-value card underneath the bottom, on the turn where you reveal that third phase card, the third phase of the game begins, the third space in all the cities on the map becomes available, and generally when that's happening, you're really driving on towards the very end of the game. So, how does the game end? Well, it ends when someone has built a certain number of cities, like I said. When the game ends, on the turn that someone has built that certain number of cities, depending on player count, you then check and see who has powered most cities. And whoever can power most cities wins the game. So if I've built in 18 cities, but I can only power 12, my score is not 18, it's only 12. Let's say Sean built in 15 cities, but he can power them all. He's going to win the game. So it's something you very much have to be aware of. Like I said, there are lots of maps. These maps introduce different rules, like people can have two different networks. Certain areas of the world can't have nuclear plants in. There's different connection costs, different patterns of city. It brings a bit of variety to a game, which I think is actually already very varied. Why is it that I love Power Grid so much and I think that it deserves a place in the vault? Well, it is a deep, very much Euro efficiency game. However, unlike lots of other sort of these deep economic games, it's a high level of interaction. 
you can manipulate player order to make things different for yourself. What goes on in the market for resources is player driven. Obviously what's happening on the map is highly interactive. The areas you decide to build towards, you decide to block people in, you decide where you want to go, what connections you want to make. This all drives the player interaction and really drives the game. The decisions throughout the game are driven by what the players are doing, not what the game is driving the players to do. It does look dry. You try and sell this a game about building power networks to people, and I'm sure it puts lots of people off. As you've got the most exciting artwork in the world. It's a dude twiddling some controls in a power station. But get past that dry exterior and you will find a cutthroat game. Drive the prices up or have them driven up by someone else. And you'll soon find that that's what it's all about. Push some auctions. Take the risk. Will you get stuck with a power plant you don't really want? Or will you make someone pay extra for them? Because every penny spent counts. Every game is different. This is a classic game, but it feels very modern. There's lots of games at the moment attempting to fuse Euro and Ameritrash the best of both worlds, should we say. Well, PowerGrid was doing this since 2004. The player turns are very quick. Everyone's doing something different in the five phases. You're not sitting there for 10 minutes waiting for someone to go. It all melds fun, brain burn, and table talk together into a fantastic package. And I really do think PowerGrid deserves a place in our vault. Sean, what have you got to throw at me? First off, Ronan... This is not a game so much as a maths exercise. I think that on the outside, it can seem like it was a maths exercise. If it didn't have the high level of interaction, then it would be. But actually, because the players are interacting all the time, it's not just this dry maths exercise. You're not just sitting there and you can calculate everything and you know what every move is going to be throughout the whole game. It's what's going on, what are the other players doing, how can I take advantage of the opportunities they're allowing for me. Yeah, you do have to be efficient. You are going to be doing maths throughout the game. It is an economic game, but it's an economic game that hides that dry engine behind a veneer of backstabbing. The game looks awful and the theme is tedious. This and the aforementioned maths point means that players can't immerse themselves. I think that this definitely might be something that keeps players away from playing the game. I don't think it's very visually appealing until you know how it works. And like lots of games, once you know what those things on the board represent, then it becomes appealing. You can walk up to a game of Power Grid once you know the map and look at it and you can see how things have developed and where they may possibly go and suddenly it becomes very interesting. Also, once you understand how the map works, each other player's actions becomes interesting and you're watching and every place they go to unveils opportunities for certain players and blocks them off for certain other players. So, like I say, every move matters in the game. It's a matter of understanding it to see the real beauty there. As for the theme... You know, all I can think of is they could have maybe tried to paste on some kind of other nonsense theme to this. And I'm not sure I liked it so much. I think they just accept it. Look, this is what you're trying to do. You're trying to create this grid. You're trying to power it. There's different ways of doing it. I'm not sure any other theme would work as well, to be honest. Dry, but suited to the game. The catch-up mechanic encourages suboptimal play and adds time to the game by making it boring. Is it suboptimal play if it's the best play to allow you to take advantage of a move later on? I think the timing of it is very interesting. And it's not one of those things that becomes slower as players know the game more. You know, certain games you realise that if you make a move, you're opening up opportunities for everyone else. Now, what we're talking about here is you don't want to build your network to the size that opens up phase two 
because when you, once you do that, you're opening up lots of other players. You open it up for them to move into second spaces in cities, and the game opens up all of a sudden. And there's very much a bit of cat and mouse around that. Also, lots of times players may not build in as many cities as they can in order to stay back in turn order to get cheaper resources and, and kind of a bit, a bit of an advantage in the auction phase. All I can say to you is, I keep losing this game because I keep trying to be too clever and hang back and manipulate turn order. If someone goes for it and just builds, they will be making more money for having a larger network they can power. And if you do that cleverly, not just building blind for no reason, you will win the game. That hanging back thing is overrated. Drive on, make money, take control of the game by the scruff of the neck. The time waiting for your turn while someone else works out all the maths for their moves is a huge barrier to enjoyment and is completely tedious. I can only say that the downtime in this is very, very limited. In each phase, every player is having actions to do. So you're always involved in each auction phase. You're then involved in each buying raw materials phase. You're then involved in each building phase. And then everyone powers all their cities at the same time and makes the money at the same time. Downtime is definitely not an issue with this. Yes, I do admit that sometimes players having to do a bit of maths here and there to work things out. But you know what? You're going to be having to do some maths because you're going to have to work out your own connections and your own cities. So spend that time doing your own maths. Everyone do your maths at the same time and a lot of the downtime disappears. It's highly repetitive and games of it seldom vary. Also, the game doesn't really develop and you finish doing the same set of actions as you start doing. Well, that's just not true at all. Every game is completely different. Every game is driven by the players. In most games, you're going to end up building in a different area, building up a different network. The players around you, your neighbours on that map are going to be different. They're going to be going in different ways. Different power plants are going to come up. The power plants coming up will mean the market will function in a different way. The bare bones is the same, but I think the variety actually is massive in this. And like I said, so much of the game is player-driven that... Decisions are going to be different every time and the game is going to play out differently every time. So, yeah, there is a set structure to the game and all you're doing is getting better power plants, building networks and making money. But that's not like most games. You're not doing anything different in a whole load of games. You know, certain games, I guess, different actions become available. I don't know if there's an issue of pacing because pacing is definitely in there because... Your power plants become more efficient, you can build quicker, and things really start to accelerate once the second areas and third areas of the cities come out. So the pace of the game changes in terms of the basic actions. Well, there's plenty of games the basic actions don't change. I can't see that's a criticism. Okay, so there's my devil's advocate bit. And Ronan, do you want to sum up and tell us why you really, really love Power Grid? Power Grid suffers from being a beautiful game behind a plain game's clothes. I encourage everyone to give it a go. Play it with a few players, maybe four, five, six players. Play it with players who are willing to interact, who are willing to chat about the game. Players who are willing to possibly be a little bit mean to each other. There's no need to be too nicey-nicey in this one. Realise that along with a efficiency game, a Euro-type, mechanically strong game, you could also have high interaction, high emotions running, and everyone can have really good fun around this thinky-thinky game. Okay, so you've heard... 
the explanations and why the person offering the game up to the vault loves the game. But now we're going to talk about what we really think about the game. So, Ronan, what do you really think about Small World? Well, Sean, Small World is a game that I've been playing since it first came out those years ago, and I have had so many fun games of it. And it's a word you used while you were talking about it, and it's a word I can only agree with. I think you've made two strong choices this time around. I think it's going to be an interesting discussion as to what we whittle it down to. A Small World, I think, probably of all four games, is the most fun when it works. It's one of those games in which, like maybe a couple of these, it's very much dependent upon the players. Everyone has to be willing to play it in the right sort of mood and with the right tone. They have to be willing to take risks, sacrifice what they've got, not be too precious about anything. Certainly not, you know, get narky with each other if they're getting attacked. I do like the variety in it. I do have a feeling that maybe it's the variety and all the expansions that really drive it for me now. You know, I don't mind playing the base game, but I really like to explore the expansions of different races. The Necromancer Island expansion, I don't know, maybe if you want to chat about the game we've had of that, which I think was loads of fun. I think it has to be played quickly. There's not enough depth in each turn to this. I think you can have depth in where you choose to command, when you choose to decline, which race you choose. But in each turn, don't spend too long thinking about it. The plans you put in place now might be blown apart by the next time you come round. Because if all the other players decide to attack you, it's not going to be in the same place. I think it's another game that's like an interactive puzzle. But in this game, it's much more about the interaction than the puzzle bit. It's much more about what each other players do to each other. That's what drives where your decisions are going to go. I think it's good and it's fun and I want it played quickly. I want it played with a smile on your face. Yeah, for me, if we were to play all four of the games, and I must say the four games that we've chosen are four fantastic games. If we were to play all four of those games, maybe once or twice a year, then I think Small World would be the game that I would probably look forward to the most because as a one-off game, and you're not playing it too often, it's just so much fun, so much interaction and just a good time to be had now i think ronan touched on it as well if you play this back to back week after week i think it does start to lose some of its luster but as a standalone one-off boom here i think it's the most fun game of the four so sean in terms of playing it it can play two to five i think the six player board just came out what do you reckon is the best number of players for it Four or five people, I think, is optimal for this. I think maybe two and three is a little bit low, although it is all right to play because I play a lot with my wife. Uh, it's one of her favourite games. But I think four or five people with lots happening, people attacking from all angles is when it sort of takes on its sort of own mantle of just crazy fun. Yeah, I think I agree. I think it's a more than merrier sort of a game. Again, as long as everyone agrees to play fairly quickly, I don't want to be sitting around for 20 minutes waiting for my turn to come around while people are trying to maximise every single move. Definitely some combinations of races and powers are more powerful than others. What do you think about it when there's some real uber combinations that can come out? There are, but you'd be very, very fortunate to get two of them on the battle. So I suppose it is possible, but then you become the target. So I think the game itself makes up for that because if people understand the game and know the game and they understand that if you get two powerful combinations that you're going to be doing the best so people will will attack you more and i think that's just the fun of the game it is obvious sort of who's got the powerful combinations and it kind of makes it a little bit closer at the end i think because of that i remember one famous five-player game i had of it when it first came out a guy got flying sorcerers 
and sorcerers in the game, if they are next to any area with one token in, that token converts itself into a sorcerer, and it very much became a four against one game, because that power is such a massive thing. So he made loads and loads of points, and he was converting people all over the shop, and then we had to try and chase him down. It made it really interesting. Now, that was really fun because of such a powerful combination. I think I mentioned it a second ago. Necromancer Island expansion is my favourite expansion of this game, and one of my favourite expansions of any game. We've had a real funny game of it. It's the game that makes one player basically the enemy of all the other players. What do you think of it? Yeah, it just changed the game completely, didn't it? Where A game where it was a complete free-for-all, all of a sudden you've got this focus. You're having to, yeah, you've got to score your points, but you've also got to be very wary and work as a team. We're bringing teamwork to this game. It's like, what? What are you doing? What are you doing? This game has nothing to do with teamwork. And all of a sudden, you have to work as a team. So definitely a really interesting and a really clever expansion. Any other expansions? I mean, it's a big thing. I suppose a few of these games, there's a lot of talk about the expansions in them. But is there anything else you want to talk about in terms of the expansions that are available for it? Do they add anything? I know you've played Underground a few times. I've now actually got both of them, so that really expands the powers and the races available to you. I've also got Small World Realms, which I've only really touched on, but that's the ability to develop your own maps and your own little intricacies of those maps. So that's really interesting to me as well, and that takes me back to my Hero Quest days when we used to design dungeons. So quite excited to learn some more about that. For me, Sean, it's a good game. It's a really fun game. I like to play it. There's a big group of players and everyone's up for a bit of a laugh. I think it's in heady company, but we'll see how it goes in the rest of the discussions. Do you want to give us your thoughts on Seven Wonders? Well, yeah, Seven Wonders, again, it's one of my favourite games. And I think you said yourself, it's the one game that really, really works best when it has loads of players. It can go up to seven players and it really works well. If you've got a lot of people around, what a great game to play. I think it's very interesting. I really love the mechanics of this. It was the first time I've ever experienced that card drafting mechanic which really opened my eyes like, oh, this is new. And the fact that you do have to really study what's going on around you. I know a lot of people have got issues with only influencing the people next to you. But as Roland quite eloquently said, no, you don't. You have to study the cards that are around you because the cards go around the whole table. They're not just passed between the people either side of you. So you have to study what's going on. And it's a game with, again, like... We're going to talk about Carcassonne later again, and I said about Carcassonne, it's got hidden depth to it, definitely. I can't think of too many more games that have sort of this level of thought, of there's you have to have some strategy in there, of agonising decisions at times in just half an hour of play. You generally do have to think about it. You have to think about where the resources are. You have to try and maximise what you've got. You have to try and put together a plan. You have to react to what's going on around you. It's all elements of a deeper game not as deep as you find a proper two hour massive sib building game of course not it's only half an hour long but deep enough that i do feel like i've had a proper gaming experience in a short amount of time and what else would i want really again you said about the card drafting mechanism i I love that mechanism i think it's a ton of fun possibly not in all games as we found out maybe a week an episode or two ago i'm moving on i'm moving on 
But there is something interesting to me because it makes the fact that you are making a decision at the exclusion of other decisions very real. You are physically taking one of the cards out, making a decision that this is the only one I want and passing the others on. Now you do that a lot of times in games. You exclude certain things and make a decision one way. But a lot of times it's a bit more subtle than that. This makes it absolutely apparent that, wow, this is quite a hard choice. I don't want to pass that on, but this is best for me or, you know, do a negative draft. I, I like the fact that it makes it so obvious. I'd say one of the negatives for me is actually the iconography. It is a bit confusing and I think it's a little bit of a barrier to entry, but once you do get that down, it just it makes perfect sense. And as Ronan touched on, I can only echo what he said, is that it's a really, really deep game for such a short gameplay time. Okay, so two down, two to go. Ronan, what do you really think about Carcassonne? You know that I really like Carcassonne. I'm one of Carcassonne's big defenders. It is the perfect game to play when you have a short amount of time. You don't particularly want to be making tough decisions. So probably a similar time frame, I would say, to Seven Wonders with Carcassonne. But Scratch is a completely different itch. It's lighter. It's probably more fulfilling, if you like. You actually feel like you're building something. It's fun. You're creating something on the table. You can see what you've done. You feel like you're working together. Even though you're competing competitively, there's a bit more of a friendly sort of camaraderie to it because you're all building the same thing up. How to manage your meeple pool is probably the most interesting part of the game for me if you throw too many of them out early you're going to be really limited you might miss out on scoring opportunities later on i think that players have to play it quickly there is not a lot of thought going on in this game there's not a lot to mull over you've just got the one tile. i know people sometimes play with two tiles or three tiles i don't think you gain enough with the game to play like that i do think you have to draw your tile at the end of your turn so you've got it and you can view the map and you can kind of start thinking about where to put it because sitting there while a player draws their tile at the beginning of their turn and then spends a couple of minutes working out where to go slows it down so much it's just absolutely unbearable because there's not enough to the game i think it's been absolutely bled dry for money it's been such a massive success all these expansions just make my head spin i have no idea what half of them are all about and i avoid playing with them mostly but for half an hour when you don't want to have the more thinky approach to, to playing something like you know the super filler sort of category but also there's no point in playing something mindless for me I, we talked about dungeon roll before and i said something that mindless has no interest to me i'd rather go away and have a conversation and just not bother distracting myself but carcassonne fits in between the two of nice fun light frothy game and uh, but really good not just nonsense but really good fun I said about Small World, it's the game that if we were playing few and far between, it's the game that I probably most look forward to playing. I think with Carcassonne, it's the opposite. It's the game if we were playing loads and loads, we had to play these four games every single week for the rest of the year. I think at the end of the year, Carcassonne would be the one that I would still enjoy. I think the others would fall by the wayside. I'm not saying that makes Carcassonne the best game. I just think it's got the longevity because it's always changing. It's not even bother about the expansions. Just the gameplay itself. There's always a different way to go. There's always a different path. You're never going to have the same map twice. And I think that's the beauty of this game. Okay, so shall we move on to number four? Share our thoughts on that before we have to start trying to narrow these down and try and make a decision with regards to what goes into the vault. And the last one, Sean, is Paragrid. What's your thoughts? You know I love myself an economy game. And 
at its very heart, that is exactly what Power Grid is. It's a very thinky, lots going on, well thought out, well produced, maybe not the most pretty game in the world, but a very, very strong game. If I have an issue with it, it is sometimes a little bit overthinky. I think you do get people who will sit and take five minutes just to work out their move, which can be frustrating, but it's a very clever game and there's so many ways to manipulate it as Ronan went through. Yeah, it's a game I absolutely love. I probably owned it for a while before playing it. I bought it right when I was first probably getting back into gaming and it was way up near the top of the BGG ratings and I thought, wow, you know, I'll have to give this a go because certainly, you know, I like a longer, kind of deeper game. And I didn't play it for a while. And like I mentioned all the way through and you mentioned yourself it's not that appealing visually certainly not that appealing thematically and i'd be hard-pressed to think why is this boring looking game about building a power network and it's all about you know shaving off a few bucks here and a few bucks there how the hell is it so high up and then you play it and it is the opposite of what it looks like it's the opposite of this dry euro deeply interactive real chances to be vicious I just think it's an absolute ton of fun. Sean, how dependent is this and the other games on the group you're playing with as to whether it's going to be any fun or not? I think this one more so than the others. Maybe Small World to a certain degree, but this is the boy for me where I think people have to play at a certain pace, have to understand the game. I think a new person into the game kind of is always going to be playing catch-up and they're not really going to be, have a chance of winning, I don't think so. Fairly experienced players of it, playing at a certain pace is an absolute must for me in this because there's nothing worse than having all your maths done and waiting for people to get theirs done. It's just such boring. As long as I know I'm going to be teaching it and I know it's going to be sort of a beginner's game, I actually don't mind teaching Power Grid. Probably because I've played it a good few times, so I don't really have to spend that much time thinking about all my stuff. I kind of can read the game quite quickly and then I can sit there thinking about other things and chatting to people while other maths is going on. I think maybe you might be in that middle zone where you still have to think a lot about what you're doing, but not as long as brand new players have to. So maybe you're trying to, you're thinking I might be forgetting what I need to do here by the time they've worked it out. It's not so much the brand new players would take so much time. I just don't think a brand new player will have a chance of winning this game because there is a lot you have to learn about the market and how it works and how to manipulate that and when to make that move. We talked about, you have to really sort of, plan your move you can't go too far ahead you can't lag too far behind you have to kind of lurk and then take your chance when it comes i don't think a new player is going to spot that i don't think a new player is going to understand how to manipulate the game so i think a new player is never ever ever unless everyone else completely scuppers each other and that's possible i suppose is never going to have a chance of winning this game but i suppose a new player's got to start somewhere so i'm kind of looking for a utopia a power grid utopia here but I just felt that a new player really would struggle. I think some of the more experienced players in terms of the actual time-taking moves are some of the worst because they know the game inside out and they can predict what people are doing, know exactly what path other people are on and when they're going to make their strike and they can then do the maths and work it out to the nth degree exactly what it will take for them to win after a stage. Obviously not at the beginning of the game. Oh, I think you're definitely overplaying both ends of your argument. There. <laughs> I think experienced players might have a bit of an advantage, but the last game I played of this, 
I can assure you, I proved that the most experienced player doesn't always win. Um, you uh, don't count. A <laughs> <laughs> uh, fellow we played a few games with Bijan, ploughed straight into me on the map, took me out, blocked off all my connections, won the brand new players one. Thanks, Bidge. I appreciate that. And then in terms of knowing exactly your path, you might be able to predict a little bit more than new players and the way things might be going. But there is enough interaction that is not that predictable. I think you made it sound like it's one of those games where you get set on a path and that's the way it's going to go. Oh, no, no. No, I wasn't I wasn't trying to say that at all. I was just saying if you understand the game, you can actually work it out a little bit better and it takes that much longer. So I'm just saying that... I think you think you can. Possibly. <laughs> I've had games of this where everyone's played nice pace, it's cracked along, loads of fun, and I haven't been frustrated. I've had games of this when I've just sat there going, please take your turn. <laughs> Are you picking on me again? Yes, I am. <laughs> I'm actually talking about myself. Come on, you know this. You can do this, buddy. So, those are some of our thoughts in the four games. I've said it initially that these are four great games. And I think they almost come at you from four different angles. Like, Small World is coming right out of the fun field. Fun, don't take it too seriously. Seven Wonders is really innovative, the way it works, and it really brought in something new to the board gaming genre. Carcassonne, just such an easy game, no barrier to entry, and that real sort of longevity and depth to it. And then Power Grid, a real gamer's game. And it's just so much intricate little bits of depth to it that will just completely flip the game around. So oh, it's, it's, it's really going to depend on what you like in gaming. It, for me, there's not an obvious game of the four. I'm going to say that's definitely going to win. Oh, I like them all. Don't get me wrong. These are definitely all in my top 30, 40 games for sure. I think you chose two strong games as well. Going to probably have to narrow it down between our own. To one each, unless you want to do it where we each knock out one of each other's. No, I'll, I'll go out the back with the shotgun and do it nicely myself. Right, because I don't think it has the longevity and I don't think that I could really, really enjoy it if I was playing it back to back all the time. I'm going to have to say that Small World is going to fall by the wayside. I've fairly recently discovered Carcassonne and... The more I play it, the more I find to enjoy about it. So at the moment, I'm just on the Carcassonne journey at the moment, whereas Small World, I kind of know what Small World does, and I understand what Small World does, and it does have barriers, and I haven't found the barriers in Carcassonne yet. So Small World, I'm afraid it's going to fall by the wayside, and Carcassonne is going to advance to the two. Right. So I guess I have to knock out one of Power Grid or Seven Wonders. And this is tough for me. I really like them both. I've played a ton of Seven Wonders and I'm still not bored of it. I still like the way it plays with different player counts. I really like playing it with skilled players who know the impact of each draft. But it's still fun to play with new players. And quite often I get beaten by new players. Maybe I'm trying to be too smart or I'm trying to read too much into the game. Power Grid, I've played less often than that. Obviously, it'd been a two-hour game. I guess it's obviously get more chance to play a half-hour game. But I enjoy the game so much. Each game has got a story to it. Each game develops. I can probably recall certain moments from each game I've played, mistakes I've made, moves other players have made. Because each game is so impactful and a real gaming experience, I think tough, really tough. They're both great in different arenas, but 
power grid has to be the one to go forward just because personally I'd rather sit down for a chunky two hour experience than for a decent half an hour experience so my nomination to go forward is power grid so Sean how are we going to come up with some way of separating Carcassonne and power grid I think this is going to be our toughest ever vault decision I have a feeling that you are very firmly in the power grid camp and I'm very firmly in the Carcassonne camp now. <laughs> so I think a lot of people will be upset either way. You know that I really like Carcassonne. You know that I will gladly always sit down for a game of it. For me, though, there's not enough to it for it to get into the vault. It's just a light game. It's just a bit of fluff. There's nothing meaningful. One game of Carcassonne is the same as the next game of Carcassonne. I like that it's kind of fairly random. That It's not all predictable yeah you can't tell exactly how it's going to go but at the end of the day that also makes it a little bit unmemorable it if i played it four games would i remember that first game again not really i don't want to in any way say the game's no good but it's just too light for me when it's put up against a heavyweight like power grid i've never had a game of carcassonne when i've gone i really didn't enjoy that i've had a game of power grid where i've gone i really didn't enjoy that and that, for me, is the reason. I think look, there is light games. There is light, fluffy games that are out there and they perform a big part of what the gaming world is. So we've got to be very careful not to just put the really serious games in. Now, on the other hand, Power Grid, I struggled to find a reason why it wouldn't go in. But then I struggled to find a reason why Carcassonne wouldn't go in. My reasoning to say Carcassonne over Power Grid is just that I think it can be ruined to a certain extent by people overthinking things. And there is, for me, a slight barrier to immersion into the game. I mean, you know I love to sort of delve deep into a game, and it sometimes does feel like it is just a math puzzle. That's been uber, uber critical. We still haven't got any further, have we? No. How are we going to split these two? I don't know, but I will come out with you the fact you saying that you've had the odd bad game of Harrogate. But then I've played the odd game of Carcassonne where people are just playing like Aegis. And it's just like, you're not even making the right choice from the, the simple choices that are in front of you. And that hasn't been so much fun because I think maybe with Carcassonne, is it possible that you have to play with players of equal skill at the game for it to be fun? which is the point I made about Power Grid. Okay, so what we're saying is you have to play with the right people, and that goes for both games. I feel it about Power Grid, you feel it about Carcassonne. We still haven't split these two, Ronan. We're going to do it. We'll find a way. If it comes down to the arm wrestle, then I've lost, but even that, we'll make that happen. For once, I'm not actually going to harp on about looks, and I don't want looks to play a part in, in splitting these two. What? what? Huh? <laughs> and my reasons for that are... Because I don't think that would be fair to Power Grid. Because Power Grid is quite an ugly game, but that's not where its strength lies. Now, it's such a difficult one, but I think that as much as I would hate for Carcassonne not to go in, I think I'd feel really, really guilty if Power Grid didn't go in. And the only way I can split these is that Power Grid in itself is a complete system where small choices make such a lot of difference and Carcassonne does rely in the long term on its expansions and some of those possibly aren't the best of expansions catapult I'm looking at you catapult is going and hiding firmly in the corner behind the North Korea map (laughs) so I think Ronan 
we've we've come to our decision, and this really was a tough one. I think, Sean, you've been the bigger man there, mostly because you are the bigger man. <laughs> I really appreciate the fact that uh, you've taken this one, you've bitten the bullet. I do feel quite bad that I've made you leave out cards, and I know it's something you adore. And I've said all the way through, it's a game I really, really enjoy. I just not sure there's enough there for it to be the best of the best of the best. But seeing as you've been so fantastic, I think I will make a promise to you. And our next vault episode will have all thematic games. We're going to do four thematic game choices. What do you reckon? You know I'm going to hold you to that, right? I don't think I've got an option, have I? Uh, you said it now. So yeah, it's a tough one for me to take because I really, really do love Carcassonne. But as I said before, I think leave power grid out would really really sort of rankle with me so all your carcassonne fans out there i'm really really sorry but i think we've made our choice ronan sounds like it it looks like power grid is going to be going into the vault alongside dominion and tigris and euphrates and that is a strong lineup of games we've chosen so far mate yeah so far so good So there we have it. Congratulations to Power Grid and all involved in that fantastic game. It finds its way into the vault alongside Dominion and Tigris and Euphrates as the best of the best of the games we've played here in the game pit. Thanks for listening. Sorry it's been such a long break. We really hope to have a couple more episodes pumped out quickly to you guys in the next couple of weeks to get back in the flow of things. The game pit are proud members of the dice tower network catch us and a wonderful plethora of gaming podcasts in the dice tower network.com you can also catch us on 2d6.org along with a whole host of gaming goodness and if you want to email us it's the game pit podcast at gmail.com we're also on twitter at game pit podcast and come along to our board game geek guild for a little bit of gaming chat music by E. Aaron.